Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome everyone both watching online and here in the room for today's event, Advancing Europe's Net Zero Industry, How the Race for Fossil-Free Competitive Energy Will Reshape Manufacturing Value Chains. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based here in Brussels. I'm going to be walking us through today's conversation. And this is a conversation happening at a very legislatively active time for the European Union. During the past year, some of the most important legislative proposals on climate change and energy have been launched and adopted by the EU. And among those has been an update to the emissions trading system that has defined new, more ambitious targets for industry with an accelerated phase out of allowances for sectors that are in the scope of the CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, which is meant to alleviate, alleviate the phenomenon of carbage leakage. Now, as a result, the European steel industry will see its free allowances completely phased out by the end of 2034. And at the same time, there are new adopted targets on renewable energy, and there are several initiatives to speed up the manufacturing capacity of renewables and other net zero technologies such as batteries, electrolyzers, heat pumps, and CCS. So all of this comes, of course, in addition in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the accompanying energy crisis, and also concerns about global industrial competitiveness brought on by actions outside of this continent. So with all of this going on, today we'll be asking whether the Fit for 55 and Green Deal are enough to provide a strong business case for green investment in Europe, for renewable and net zero technologies, as well as other industrial sectors, such as energy intensive industries. Where is Europe getting the regulatory balance right? And where could that regulatory balance use improvement? To get us started, I would like to introduce and welcome here to the podium, Francesc Rubiralta Rubio, Eurofur president and chairman and CEO of the Celsa Group, Welcome to the podium. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you for the speakers for taking time uh, to dedicate um, to us uh, for this uh, important topic. On behalf uh, of the European steel industry, I would like to uh, express uh, my uh, gratitude for uh, not only the presence of those that are here uh, physically, but the all, of, all, all of you that are connected uh, online. The EU steel industry is determined to lead the way in the green industrial revolution. We possess both the plans and the skilled workforce to achieve this goal. Our aim is to establish ourselves as pioneers on industrial decarbonization and circularity not only in Europe, but all across the globe. Our credentials already prove that we can do so. First, we have already reduced our carbon footprint by 55% between 1990 and 2020. Our companies have launched over 60 industrial scale projects to reduce another 30% the next eight years our carbon footprint so that by uh, 2050 we reach carbon neutrality. Second, steel is one of the few materials that is 100% recyclable. 
over and over again without loss of its essential properties. This explains why the steel industry is the most important recycling industry in the European Union in terms of recycling related, in terms of tonnage, turnover and in terms of circularity. Steel is at the base of the circular economy, a resource that Europe needs to preserve for its Green Deal and strategic autonomy objectives to become a reality. Additionally, by recycling 88 million tons of steel scrap every year, our industry reduces its EU footprint by 132 million tons of CO2. This means that uh, this number is the same as 40% of EU households. And third, steel is also essential for the energy transition, as it is critical for all low-carbon and renewable energy technologies. Just to give you two clear examples, each new megawatt of solar power requires between 35 to 45 tons of steel. And each new uh, megawatt of wind power requires up to 120 tons of steel. Actually, wind turbines uh, are made at least 70% of steel. The energy crisis triggered by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ambitious industrial policies pursued by our competitors post risk of divesting of diverting investments that we want to keep within Europe. The recent agreement on the emissions trading scheme has significant implications for our industry. The plan entails a rapid phase out of free allowances for sectors covered by the carbon border adjustment mechanism by 2034, ushering in profound changes. We anticipate the scaling up of new decarbonization projects as early as 2025, heralding a new era for our industry. Electricity will undoubtedly play a pivotal role in, transform in transforming both carbon-intensive blast furnace steel production and the competitiveness of electric arc furnaces still made from recycled scrap. However, despite our dedicated efforts, the success of our transformation hinges on various external factors beyond our control. Of particular concern is the widening cost gap in energy prices between Europe and its major competitors, impacting multiple industrial sectors, including steel. This prevailing uncertainty of energy prices arises precisely when our sector, like many others, is poised to invest in new production that reduces CO2 emissions but requires substantial additional electricity consumption. Just to give you an idea of uh, the green hydrogen that uh, we will need uh, to um, transform ourselves, in order to produce this green hydrogen we need 2.1 uh, terawatts of uh, electricity every year. So electricity for us is critical not only to run our operations, but to get the green hydrogen that we need for our decarbonization. It is imperative uh, that we establish a solid business case to not only retain existing investments, but also attract new ones to Europe. Industrial policies in other regions around the globe, such as the recent uh, IRA Inflation Reduction Act, proposed markedly different visions how to incentivize industrial decarbonization. Europe needs a robust business case and a level playing field 
to support the growth of clean technologies and the transitioning sectors that underpin our prosperity. The expansion of renewals, the utilization of hydrogen, the advancement of wind energy and the proliferation of electric vehicles all rely heavily on steel. In fact, we estimate that the energy, the, the renewable energy sector will require over 74 million tons of steel during the next eight years to accomplish the plans uh, that we have in the Net uh, Zero Act and the Fit for 55. To achieve a successful EU industry policy, we must adopt a value-changed-based approach with new industrial ecosystems such as wind, hydrogen and green steel at its core. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frances. That gives us a good idea of kind of the stakes that we're looking at here right now at this particular moment for the steel industry. Let me introduce you to the panelists we have here with us today to talk about these issues. So here to my right, we have Ruud Kempener. He's a member of cabinet of Kadri Simpson, who is the European Commissioner for Energy. Next to him, we have Geert van Polvorde, Eurofor Vice President and CEO of ArcelorMittal Europe. Next to him, we have Kirsten Jorna, who is Director General for DG Grow at the European Commission. Next to her, we have Giles Dixon, CEO of Wind Europe. And finally, next to him, we have Yorgo Chatsimarkasis, CEO of Hydrogen Europe. Thank you all so much for joining us here today. You guys will be able to ask your questions to the panelists as well, whether you're here with us in person or watching online. If you're watching online, you can type in your questions just to the right of the screen, and I will see them here on my tablet, and I can ask them to the panelists. Here in the room, we'll be taking questions live at the end of the panel. Uh, so, Kirsten, let me start with a, a question for you. We've heard um, about all of these EU legislative initiatives that have come from the Commission. What would you say are the most relevant measures, specifically in the EU's green industrial plan, that are aimed at accelerating investments in renewables and other net zero technologies, as we were just hearing? Thank you very much. The most relevant piece in all of this is, I think, that we're looking and starting from the business case. Uh, and we have never done that in our legislation so far. So for the Net Zero Industry Act, we look at access to land, access to finance, access to skills, access to market. Because that's really what needs to drive your decisions um, when you want to invest. And uh, I mean, uh, more broadly speaking, we have 24 million companies, and 24 million companies actually will have to make investment decisions now if they want to decarbonize their business models and it's to facilitate these decisions and that's why with the net zero industry act we really focus on the clean tech which will enable us to have that renewable energy and when i go on these four access to land meets per permitting so we have very ambitious uh, rules on permitting which is breaking a taboo because for a long time we regulated at EU level and we implemented at national level. And that taboo is no longer true. So we are regulating national implementation. This is quite a big step. And we are regulating it in, in four different ways. One is we say deadlines, respect very short deadlines. And we're talking in months, not years. We are talking about one-stop shops. Um, 
I heard in the previous panel that, you know, to change to an electric arc requires something like 30 different authorizations from different authorities, not connected to each other, all with a veto right, all to be talked to on an individual basis. So that's, of course, not helping. And that's why one-stop shop. And the other one is digital, purely digital. Plus, a discussion with a company upfront what is needed so that, you know, when you start to discuss all this and ask for the permit, you don't learn after two years, ah, there was this one document you should have delivered as well. So that's the permitting part. Then comes the uh, access to skills part, where we are, again, breaking completely with the past that we have, because in the past we recognized qualifications as such, uh, uh, professions. Now we're moving to skills. You know, to install a solar panel on a roof, you need to be a roofer and you need to bit about electricity. So it's these skills that should be portable, not the whole thing around it. Access to uh, finance, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but is to make sure that there's a label that gives priority access to the different funding sources, because it's not a lack of money. It's actually a lack of how this money can be combined, the blending. And access to market means using leveraging public procurement to, do, uh, to actually uh, uh, create a market when public <coughs> authorities uh, want to install clean tech that that uh, has certain features and certain standards, it's commoditized in a way, and that's helpful for, for investors also to come in. So rather than to say this or one element is more important than the other, it's the fact that we think it from the logic of the business case. And we see that in the discussions with the parliament and the council, they're gradually also moving into thinking in this way uh, because we want to be helpful uh, for, uh, for companies to take these investment decisions and for them to take them now and for them to have a perspective that in a couple of years the energy price will go down dramatically um, because renewables as such is, uh, is, uh, is much uh, cheaper. But the challenge is to have the quantities, to have the scale up, and I'm sure we'll talk about that mm. as well. Geert, let me get your thoughts next on, on the EU legislative initiatives and how they're going to affect competitiveness with the steel industry, particularly the, the EU green industrial plan. I mean, do you agree that it's, it's on the right course in order to get these investments, get this money flowing that we need? Yeah, so I think we first have to be a bit, um, take it a bit broader because I sometimes have the impression that people think that decarbonization of the steel industry is only about hydrogen. So I think we have to do a bit step back. Uh, what, what we see is that in the Eurofair, we have all the companies have defined all their projects. I think we have more than 30 billion euro investments announced. And when you start from, a, let's say, the big one, the blast furnace route, which is coal-based, and you build the DRI with an electric arc furnace, on natural gas-based, I don't talk about hydrogen at the moment, natural gas-based, you reduce your CO2 with 65 to 70%. Should not underestimate, this, this is already a huge step and the biggest step. When you go then, uh, on this same installation, you go to hydrogen, you go from minus 65, minus 70% to minus 90%. So the step to build a DRI and an EF to go to natural gas is already much bigger than the step from natural gas to hydrogen. Of course, to go to net zero at the end, you will need hydrogen. This is clear, and, and we are all working on this. 
But we should not forget that, that this first step is needed and is also necessary to do. Now, when you come to hydrogen, um, what, 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 what do we need in the steel industry? What do we need? When you take a look at, and, and I just take the same example of this hydrogen-based DRI and electric arc furnace, the volumes we need in the steel industry of hydrogen are massive. And I think this is sometimes underestimated. We are talking about, when we talk about an installation of uh, 2 million ton DRI, which is not set big when we talk about the whole Europe, we need 150,000 ton hydrogen. 150,000 ton hydrogen. And we will maybe see it. This is an equivalent of one gigawatt electrolyzer capacity for one DRI. So the, the amount of hydrogen is massive, first point. Second point, we need it continuously because our steel industry is running continuously. So you cannot deliver hydrogen when it is produced with solar, when in the night we don't get it. Or when there is no wind, we don't get it. We need a solution for hydrogen on continuously based. Meaning that, first, you have the massive volume. Secondly, you need a solution for stocking or buffering for the time where your renewable energy is being all there. Unless you're producing with nuclear, this is something else. Then you have it, of course. But when you go to renewable, you need a solution for buffering. Third, we need a price which is correct. Because when you go from a blast furnace to a DRI, an electric arc furnace, based on natural gas, the cost of your steel goes up. And we see it. That's, this is the reason why there is only one DRI installation in Europe. And all the rest of the DRIs are not in Europe. They're in everywhere in the world, but not in Europe. Because in Europe, also in the past, the natural gas price was too expensive. So going to natural gas is very expensive. So you cannot go higher than when you then introduce hydrogen. So when you take a look at the equivalent, you're coming directly on a cost of two euro per kilo hydrogen, which is, when we calculate it today in Europe, not feasible today. So we need volume, we need it continuously, and we need it at a good price. Next point is that when you know that you decarbonize, your cost goes up. You need two things. First of all, you need a lead market for green steel. The good news is that the customers can afford it. So the steel price will not go up in such an amount that the car is not feasible anymore. Maybe your car will go up at two, three hundred euro per car. Maybe your washing machine goes up at 20 euro or 15 euro. So the customer can, af can, can afford it. So this is the good news. But you need this market because when the customer or our customers have the choice to choose both, they will still, of course, choose the steel which is less expensive. So we need lead markets, and there a lot of discussions are running with the governments. You could talk about quota, you could talk about the customers to force them to implement part of green steel in their products, like in the car industry, you have forced them to have a tail and CO2 pipe reduction, so you can also force them to green steel. So this is a frame we need that this green steel finds a market. The next point is that you have to protect your borders. Because when we have higher cost steel, and it is green, fine. But when there is imports coming in which is not green, do not have a CO2 tax on it and are just floating our markets, then you have invested for a green product which does not find a market and will be overruled by imports that are not green. So that's why we always talk about the CBAM, but the CBAM, this carbon border adjustment mechanism at the border, has to work.
And since this is so big, all of this in the transition phase, I talked about 30 billion in, uh, in, in Eurofed announced investments. Today, we have an ETS system, a legislation, which is increasing the CO2 cost year after year after year. So at the same moment, you have to do massive investments to decarbonize in Europe. Plus, today the CBAM is not yet there, so we are flooded with imports. Now, this cocktail is not working. You cannot have high cost on CO2, forced to invest, letting the imports come in. So that's why we need funding. And then sometimes we have a discussion with the governments, uh, yeah, but state aid steel industry is not allowed. So it's very simple. We do not want steel state aid. We have never lifted state aid. State aid in steel industry is forbidden since the 80s. But we get CO2 tax. We are taxed on CO2. So that's why we need also a support for the construction of the installations. And to make it very simple, the CO2, the CO2 tax we're going to pay is much higher than the support we need for the investments. So at the end, the member states get the CO2 allowance payments. And this is an amount of money which is very easily usable to help funding the steel industry to, to, to decarbonize. So this is a whole, and this whole thing, and it's not forever, this whole thing is a transition phase, right? So it is just a transition until we are decarbonized and that we are strong enough to stand on our own feet. So you see that the challenges are not small with green hydrogen, and that's why we're also saying, when we say we need the volume, we need the price, we need continuously, we need the CBAM, we need a green steel market, we need funding support, it is also necessary for the transition that we look a bit broader because I think with the, with the volume I mentioned, we all agree that this volume will not be there soon. So the volume of, of green hydrogen we will need will be not available the next years. So that's why we also have to open a bit our, our eyes and saying, okay, maybe we should also allow for a transition phase blue hydrogen or turquoise hydrogen or gray hydrogen. So to at least to do a step forward in the decarbonization until the green hydrogen is available. Another topic is CCS, where there is a lot of discussion on CCS. Well, maybe CCS will be faster in some countries than uh, the green hydrogen. So then we should also allow the companies to decarbonize with CCS. I see in the US, CCS will be heavily funded, heavily funded. So why don't we allow this? Why don't we open this? And I see that a lot of countries are building those projects so I think we, we should not, that's why I'm saying we should not only focus on this green hydrogen and focus on this thing only. We are in a transition way and we have uh, years, years of transition to go and there we need a lot of different concepts to be able to, to decarbonize properly in Europe. Jorgo, we heard there... So I just yeah, say, you can go back CCS back. is in net zero industry. Yeah, uh, as a technology yes, and a scale up absolutely. for that Absolutely, but technology. what we see in our funding file is that the Commission doesn't want it. And the Member States keep on saying, as I, you know, CCS, we're not sure, we don't want. So this is something we have to open. Yeah, I know, the legislation is there. And when, every time we talk to the Commission, and we have also talked to Mrs. Vestergaard, uh, we, are, we, are, we are technology neutral. What we see is that our discussions with the Member States, and when we get our files mm. back, is not that neutral. So I think we have to really also, and there is a difference between saying it is technology neutral and saying I allow funding, I will support it, you know, from member states. So that we are not yet there. Right? Yeah, we certainly still see a lot of hesitancy on CCS from right. national governments. Yeah. 
Um, so, Yorgo, we heard there the amount of hydrogen that will be needed uh, in order to facilitate these, these transitions. Are you confident that the EU Green Industrial Plan is going to accelerate the manufacturing capacity of electrolyzers? And what else would you like to see to stimulate that? So, first of all, thanks very much for the invitation. Axel Egert, uh, we are uh, collaborating as steel and hydrogen industry a long time now, and I feel honored to be here. Unfortunately, I need to go 15 minutes before the closure of the panel, I said from the very beginning. The second thing is I owe, we owe very much to Kerstin and her team to build up um, the Clean Hydrogen Alliance to make steel an integral part of it. Steel was the starting story. When I started seven years ago at Hydrogen Europe, they were dealing with a car. Huh? So, and I said that's the wrong approach, that's the wrong narrative. You need to go for the big thing, for the real decarbonization. I, I came here with my car, it's in front of the hotel, don't get me wrong, with my hydrogen car. But we need more, more uh, big volumes. Have you heard of the closure last week of NEOM? Who in this room has heard of this closure? NEOM closure? Saudi Arabia? No, nobody. You should. 600 million tons of green hydrogen. It's, a, it's not a dry closure, it's a real closure. As of 26 on a daily basis. 600 tons daily, not million. 600 tons daily. Is that okay? Is that something? It is something. And this happens now. It happens because the European Commission gave the right signals to the world markets. The Saudi Arabians would never have done it if they wouldn't have known there is a market for us to go. So it is happening, and I'm, I really would encourage you to look into a little bit more into this hydrogen news. Although I agree with Hert, I agree with you, it's not a silver bullet. I fully agree. It's, a, it's an array of different technologies that we need to look into, and here I agree super with you that the Commission is not technology neutral. It's not. Although they do a lot, but guess what? How do we transport the green hydrogen from Saudi Arabia to Salzgitter? I will mention Salzgitter uh, several times. Pipelines, right? This is a hydrogen pipeline. There is no pipeline from Saudi Arabia. So we need to ship it via green ammonia. It's the cheapest way. And why is green ammonia not in DG Enner's red to eligibility plan? It's not. It has been forgotten. It's a copy and paste error. It's not a copy and paste error. Wood will refer to it. It has been done on purpose. I say it clearly because there are people in the Commission who want to keep the price for hydrogen high. So it's not coherent what is done there. And I clearly say it because I don't like it. So I don't want this thing to be part of policy making that you just forget the most important shipping route. Leave it out. Now, our challenge is what? This is a sponge reduced with hydrogen. Our challenge is to produce this in Europe and not to import them like First Alpine decided. It's First Alpine here in the room, I, I think. First Alpine decided to import them, I think, from the US. <clears throat> Our challenge, Kerstin, Ruud, is that this is produced in Europe, that hydrogen is available, although it's not a silver bullet, but in the end, to go for net zero, there will be no other way. Gas is super important, but there are people against gas. So if you go the hydrogen route, we need to make sure that it comes cheap. First of all, we understand that it happens all around us, but it comes cheap to Europe and it's possible to do it. 
Today is a big day for that. I super, I, I really understand what Herd says and com complains about funding. Today, and Ruth, I think, will report about that. Uh, there will be announcement on later on at, at Salzgitter on uh, Hydrogen Bank. It's not maybe not a perfect bank, but it is an instrument to cover to cover at least the extra cost that you have. And it's an absolutely applaudable approach by the Commission, to say something positive, to go into that direction. But I have to say we need to be coherent. We have seen a lot of development together with renewables, together with other colors, and there I fully agree with you, there will be not enough green hydrogen, there will be other technologies as well that need, need to be used. We will see volumes, but we also need to embrace it. We cannot say, ah, that's enough now, let's keep the price. No, the Delegated Act that you, that you all have heard still contains an hourly correlation as of 2030. The US have discussed this hourly correlation thing. And they have said, because they also have NGOs, they also have this pressure. And they said, we are not nuts. Why should we add extra costs of five times, so 175% to a technology production <laughs> What's the purpose? It's not needed. It's done on purpose. It's wrong. It's wrong. But this is the incoherent approach that we have here in Europe. So I come back again. The challenge is this here. Do we want this here or not? Do we want this only for the companies that are close to seaside, close to pipelines, or do we want it for everybody? Some decisions have already been taken in Austria, and I don't want to see more of these decisions. Uh, my home region is Saarland, represented today here in the room. Saarstahl, I want Saarstahl to go for that decision to do DRI in, uh, in Dillingen and in uh, Saarbrücken and not to import or to be forced to go out of the market. This is the challenge, and here I think the European Commission has done quite a lot. I would like to applaud also the plan to go for objective, for targets, so industrial targets in red too, still reopened by the French. But if we get there, then steel is with us with 1.5 million tons per year. That's the figure that we have uh, counted. And it's doable, Gert. It's doable. But we need to want it all together. Uh, and we need to embrace it and not try to qualify this is good electricity, this is bad electricity. We need to embrace in order to survive as Europeans and we will. I'm very confident that we still have the time to go there. Well, you mentioned that this will all be part of a kind of ecosystem. So, Giles, when it comes to the wind sectors, there's obviously two intersections here. One is that the wind sector needs steel, but also steel needs the power from the wind sector. So, how do you view the EU's green industrial plan in terms of whether it's going to be successful in stimulating investment in wind power? It's too soon to tell, Dave, but... The Green Deal industrial plan is better than anything we might have envisaged even one year ago, let alone two years ago, but it's not yet the real deal. What's good? Well, Kerstin, you said it. Permitting. This used to be a taboo subject. Member states, sovereignty. We decide what gets built where, whether it's wind turbine factories or wind farms. No more. Now we have strict deadlines as you say. And there are still a few taboos out there that need shaking, by the way, Kirsten. We've just discovered that the German Autobahn Authority has 
15,000 outstanding permit applications for the transport of wind turbine components around Germany's highway network. 15,000. We're stuck. We can build the factories, get permits to build the wind farms, but we can't get the turbines from the factory to the wind farm. Can you do something with the transport ministries? Kirsten? I take note. Thank you very much. So, the Green Deal Industrial Plan, the Net Zero Industrial Act at its heart. Many good things in it, Kerstin. Thank you for saying that we should move away from deciding what wind and solar gets built where purely on the basis of price and that we should have non-price criteria factored into those decisions in national auction processes. That's very good. And you've given a steer as to what those non-price criteria might cover. Sustainability. Yeah, perhaps we could be a bit more precise than that when the text is finessed in the Parliament and Council. Energy system integration. Yes, very important. Give a wind farm auction bidder a few more points in his score if he's offering some batteries or electrolyzers as well as his wind farm. And then, of course, this broad concept that you've identified in your proposal, Kirsten, supply chain resilience, means lots of different things. It's very clear to us, and I think most people in the clean energy manufacturing place, that our political license to operate and deliver this energy transition relies on this equipment being made in Europe. So let us spell it out that supply chain resilience means if you're promising to source your equipment from European turbine manufacturers, you score extra points in the auction evaluation. It requires adding only three words to your proposal, made in Europe. Um, your colleagues in DG Competition have been quite helpful as well with the new state aid guidelines, the TCTF. They allow national governments to give investment tax credits, capex support to build new factories for all of the equipment needed for the energy transition. But it's not clear that they allow for OPEX support. In the US under the IRA, you get OPEX support the minute you ask for it. You even get a butter premium. You yeah. know, how much? $3 yeah. per kilogram of hydrogen. We did this with butter and milk in the past and we know what it ended in. Yeah. And then we've got the additional EU financial offering, which isn't yet on the table. And we're looking forward to the sovereignty fund. We're looking forward to the dedicated calls in the innovation fund for clean energy manufacturing. But please, please, and Kerstin, you've heard us say this many times, don't get hung up with this EU money being linked exclusively to technology breakthroughs. No, this is all about building more of the same. The challenge we have today is, yes, the money is out there, the capital is there, but companies in the wind energy supply chain, they're operating at a loss today for all sorts of complicated reasons. They've got the technology, they know how to build new factories, they want to do it, they just need public financial support to build more of the same. It's a volume challenge. Now, it is not a technology challenge and the analogy we like to draw is imagine it's 1937 we've invented the spitfire 
We know it's a good plane, and we know we're going to need it because we know what's coming. And we need to build more of them ASAP, which means building as many Spitfire factories as we can ASAP. That is where we are today with the clean energy revolution and the manufacturing base. And you've just got to enable us to build more of the same. Thank you. So, Rude, we've heard their compliments for what the Commission has done. We've heard a wish list of things that the Commission could do. Um, in your view, is the Green Industrial Plan going to be enough to get us where we need to go? Um, and then in terms of some of the, the comments we've heard so far, uh, feel free to, to respond to whatever you'd like. Yes, indeed. Um, so I'm here today, and my commissioner is today in Germany visiting Salzgitter. She's there to essentially, you can't even say it's celebrated, eh, but at least kind of think uh, or uh, show that one year ago, almost one year ago, we had this Repower EU plan, like a plan really to kind of, you know, build in two, three months to really wean off Russian fossil fuels. We're one year further. She decided to go to Salzgitter. She decided to go and look at the plant there and their investment they're doing in hydrogen. Why? Because it's really exemplary of what we need to do. We, we, we're in a crisis. Uh, fossil fuels, which we were relied upon, the coal and gas we were relied upon, we couldn't rely upon anymore. We need to transition. That's why we're investing in renewables. That's why we're investing in hydrogen. And that's why she's there as well. So what have we been doing? I think what we've been doing, and this already started way before uh, kind of the Repower EU plan, is to put industry much more central in terms of the energy transition. Previously, we were developing renewables. We had renewable electricity coming in, but we hadn't had industry central in terms of this energy transition, and we've done that now. I think it's there. We are working with the industry to make that energy transition. Why? Because it is indeed, and that's the title says it, there is a competition to get this fossil-free uh, energy to you everywhere around the world. So what do I think Europe has been doing in this particular uh, uh, space and why do I think it's important for the steel sector? So first of all, if we look into the future, and not the distant future, I think in the next couple of years, we will see everywhere more and more renewables coming into the system. It's simple as that. It's the cheapest form of renewables that we need. It's the cheapest form of uh, energy that we need. So that means, not only here, but around the world, these projects are being built. But how to get this to the industry? And that's, I think, what here talks about. Yes, you can have a solar plant. Yes, you can have a wind plant. But you need to get this to the industry. And I think what we have here in Europe, and I don't think any other region in the world has it, it really has a market geared to bringing that energy to the industry. It's a competitive market. We have competition here. Uh, we might have a project somewhere in the desert which uh, b uh, has very cheap solar power, but it's only one plant. Here you really have an integrated network with projects, offshore wind, solar, uh, onshore wind, geothermal, complementing each other across the EU, bringing that energy to whoever needs that. And that comes to that second point, which I think Kier already mentioned as well, infrastructure. Yes, we have these renewables built around everywhere, but we need to make sure that they can get to the end consumers. And again, there, in order to make those investments, you need to have the regulatory certainty. Who is going to own those uh, infrastructure? How do you get access to it? How do you get the energy out of that infrastructure at the end of it? 
And again, there, I think we have something unique here on the table. I was in a meeting in Rotterdam uh, two weeks ago, 8,000 people around the world, but I've never heard anywhere anyone talking about a government, how they're going to organize this. And we have actually the plans here on the table. We've been discussing this since the end of 2020. We will finalize that this year. We have that in place. That creates the regulatory certainty. And again, why is that important? Because if we want to have this competitive energy, this whole world is a capex world. So we need to have also the bank and the capital ready to be able to invest. And to get there, your interest uh, rates low, you need again to have this uncertainty. So again, there I think there is really the kind of a, a kind of a, a virtual circle that we are creating by creating an energy system ready for the industry. And then last but not least, I think, and this was also alluded to already, we do have the customers here in Europe. We do have, I believe, the citizens that are aware of where we need to go with the energy transition and are ready to indeed kind of invest in green steel. And it's not only that the, 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 the steel is green, but also I think the products that we can produce over here are really fundamental to our energy transition. Um, two weeks ago, I went to a factory where they build the offshore, um, uh, offshore wind foundations. These are massive steel columns, 100 meter big. They can only get that steel here in Europe, the quality that they need for that. So we really have this kind of value chain already built over here. I think we have now an energy system a regulatory framework for the energy system to get all of those renewables to the end consumer. And then that combined with what, we, what other low carbon energy sources we can create, we can really create that energy system. Now, we have this vision for 2050, but I think we're getting there already this, this decade. If you think about the targets that we have for 2030, for renewables, for uh, energy efficiency, for the uh, renewable hydrogen, etc., we are making a big shift. We really are going to, you know, 42% of uh, renewables into your system is huge. Add there the nuclear power that we have on top of that. Uh, and then, you know, at, and then this year we're going to look at 2040 to see how we can really make that next step. I think with all of that coming together, we really have a nice package. And I don't see anywhere, uh, just to respond to, to, to some comments here, anywhere in the European Commission, anyone doing something against these plans. This is, we know we need to do this together with and for the industry because without this, we are not going to kind of uh, be able to, to finalize our ambitions and our plans. So one more thing. Um, it's actually quite remarkable if you think about this event today. I don't think that three, four years ago we would be sitting here together. Like the steel sector, the wind industry, the hydrogen industry on a podium talking about the future. So how much have we already done in the last couple of years? I think it's really remarkable. The fact that we are here together is remarkable. So I think let's use that and then take it to the next step and build those, uh, those fossil-free steel plants. Um, Kirsten, one developing piece of legislation that we haven't touched upon extensively yet is the electricity market design proposal. Can you walk us through how that's going to fit in to all of these issues we've talked about? I mean, maybe I this is better for I think it's better for Roots to walk through that. Do you want to that. take that, Ruth? Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, so why is the electricity market design uh, uh, proposal important? I think I'm going to say one word, and I, and I hope that kind of resonates. In order to make the investment decisions, 
in order to kind of invest in these new steel plants, you need to know what your electricity or energy costs are going to be in the future. And that's what the electricity market design aims to achieve. We are going to have, uh, again, lots of renewable electricity coming into the system. And what we are saying in the electricity market design is that there are essentially three ways to get the renewables into there. One is with public support. That's how renewables have been coming in, into the past, through public support. But what we're now saying is we need to make sure that that public su support creates renewables where we know the price also long term. So there is kind of a range within which they get support. If there are more returns, this goes back to the consumer. So that's one way. Now, the second one is renewable power purchase agreements. This is a market that has rapidly kind of started to grow, but we need a lot more than that. So what that essentially means is that everyone here out of you has to go out on the market and can actually start kind of looking at a contract, knowing the price of your electricity for the next 10, 12 years. And we are actually requesting member states to help you do that by not only facilitating that on the one hand side, but also by, for example, if there are any credits required from the off-taker, so steel sector, etc., to help there as well. The third one also that we require member states is to allow projects to combine it. So maybe a part of the project through a support scheme and the other part directly onto the market to the end consumer. Again, that's what ensures you to get kind of that price. Now then, there's the third avenue, and the third avenue is the market. Because we will be in a future, that's pretty clear, where the prices will change every single hour. That's just simply a fact. Not here, everywhere in the world, the prices will change every single hour. So if people start arguing against the Hydrogen Delegated Act about this hourly thing, it's a simple fact. Every hour, the prices will be different. So what we'll need to do is to make sure that we take advantage of those hours that the prices are cheap. And that's when there's a lot of renewables into the system. Now, at those hours where we don't have renewables, we want the market to push as much as possible those hours via other options. So this could be storage, this could be demand response, this could be other forms of flexibility in order, again, to... Uh, to kind of balance the electricity market at those hours when it's not available. And again, there, there's a big role we see also for the end consumer, kind of ensuring that those end consumers actually can use those hours as well, especially if you're in a, in, 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 in a sector where you have some flexibility or you can think of solutions which you can do through storage, etc., to take advantage of, of, of the, the, the capabilities that you give to, to the system. Jorgo, uh, do you agree with some of these elements that are in the proposal that we've just heard? I agree <clears throat> with nearly all elements. Uh, I mean, the combination uh, power purchase agreements long term, uh, I listened many years to Giles telling me how important that is. That is also relevant for hydrogen, of course. Huh? So you can do power purchase agreements on your, on your hydrogen volume. But here's exactly where <laughs> I disagree. The hourly correlation and the price that changes is uh, irrelevant. It's relevant to prove that it's renewable. You don't need hourly correlation for that. This has been done by one person. Let's say it clearly, it, it was Mrs. Vestager. Huh? She wanted the hourly correlation in the end on a, on a personal base. By the way, important for the steel industry, the TCTF that I think you mentioned uh, already, this temporary crisis uh, mechanism to give state aid 
fast and without bureaucratic burden to companies like you, it's a very important element, there's one commissioner who has taken out one steel product out of it, just like this, it's fuel cells. It's taken out. Interesting. It was Mrs. Vestager. So what I want to say is there are people who are working against it. And that's what I'm saying. I'm using that here to say let's not let this go. We need all commissioners and the whole uh, European Commission to work in favor of this direction. Otherwise, we lose that chance uh, to be, as European Union, a place where steel will be produced. Because if you see, I mean, uh, Hert represents a company that is around the globe. For him, it's easy huh, to make an investment decision, not in Europe anymore, but elsewhere. Uh, uh, I see uh, uh, Zashta represented. For Zashta, it's not that easy. You're not around the globe. You're not, you're, so we need to allow also these smaller but very important because specialized steel companies to stay here. We heard that all these big wind turbines cannot be produced elsewhere. They need to be produced here, and this is why we need to see this as a collaborative approach. We need to work together. We, as hydrogen sector, we have grown dramatically over the last years, but it wouldn't have been possible without steel. So the very fact that we can serve the steel industry helped the Commission to understand, okay, it's important. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked. So we are grateful to you, but now we need to go this path together. Uh, by the way, also uh, with our friends from the steel industry, because the turbines that they need to produce will be built with hydrogen-based steel. So it's, so, so to say, the story here at the panel, and Ruth, you're totally right, some years ago that wouldn't have been imaginable that we sit here, it's a European success story. How many turbines are in the U.S. so far? How many wind turbines? Is it 8 gigawatt? Is it, is it 20 gigawatt? Is it 8 megawatt? The U.S. today have... Offshore, offshore, huh? offshore. Uh, oh, offshore, offshore, they have 30 megawatt of operating... So my information turbines. says it's eight turbines. It's only eight turbines offshore, huh? offshore. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nothing. So you see, the gap between U.S. and that's why the IRA is so important for the whole world. It, it, they understand the strategic dimension of uh, uh, clean tech. They want to attract this. And we are in a pole position here. We have the turbines. We have the special steel production here. We have the proximity of our markets. Let's go, but let's do it together. And I'm looking at Kasten now because I know that within the commission there are, of course, sometimes these. We need to go this together. There's still one year of this commission. Please don't let this time, uh, and I, I come to wonder, time to decarbonization pass by. You all know time to market, innovation, time to market. We need to think about time to decarbonization. If we just reduce ourselves to the technologies that you have mentioned uh, in your ENSIA proposal, we might have a delay because some of these critical raw material technologies are not there. Hydrogen is an enabler, again, not the silver bullet. It's an enabler that brings different technologies together and time to decarbonization, so the shorter time, the acceleration of this. This is the important thing, and we might need, CCS was mentioned already, we might need other technologies on top, because we cannot just wait for heat pumps, to put it like that. Uh, and this is where we are, uh, and that's why, again, happy to see us all here, but we need to go the path until the end.
Kirch, you wanted to come yeah. in? And then Can I maybe, work. because I, I have to defend my colleagues, uh, in, in terms of one of the proposals of the timely characterization, just to say that this proposal was in, put in place in 2018 in the Renewable Energy Directive already. So I think way before some people uh, got involved in the files on hydrogen. So it's really kind of a concept that has already been there for a very long time, not just this year. I would like to say it's not only about regulation because time to decarbonization, I totally agree. And it's speed, speed, speed. I mean, if that's the three words to retain. But we need new formats to do it. It's not only through regulation. It's actually looking at the business case and understanding where we can de-risk that business case. Is it the market risk? That's what we're trying to use public procurement for. That's what in our Critical Raw Materials Act, we're actually looking at the off-takers and we're saying, you know, not more than 65% from a single source. Um, so organize it in that way. Um, it's uh, it's de-risking when it comes to, I mean, I don't want to go into the OPEC story, but I mean, on the CAPEX story, it's, it's really de-risking the... Uh, uh, the investment and looking, you know, where does the market not give you this investment? Uh, it's de-risking on the time to permitting, uh, which uh, which we are doing. But it's only is also working through the transition pathways, which is a kind of lifting the horizon. You know, when I look at 2030, where do I want to be? And what would it take to get there? And if I see, you know, I don't get there because some technology is missing, which is not the case in steel, or because some de-risking is miss missing. So then we can organize that. Uh, and we have our partners like the EIB, um, EIF for other, uh, for, 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 for the more startup scale-up question. And I totally take your crunch, you know, investment, uh, CO2 price, and, and imports. But it's by having these discussions that we can find and, and contribute solutions. Um, and this was uh, the case on, on, on the CBAM. It's the case on the Innovation Fund uh, and, the, uh, and the fact that this Innovation Fund can actually help to take risk either through the Hydrogen Bank or through uh, for, the, for the CAPEX part. So it's really by listening and adjusting, but, you know, by, by still looking at where it helps the business case. Because coming with very high, strong regulation only is not enough. That's what we see. And that's uh, why formats like this are really, I mean, it's about the value chain. It's about getting it right. Thank you to Giles. When I went to Copenhagen to the, uh, the wind uh, uh, event, uh, I mean, I saw everyone, the ports, the foundations, the gearboxes and blades, uh, the off-takers. Uh, and it's only when you take everything together that you can make a meaningful policy and that your speed kind of translates through the value chain. Because if you speed up only one part and then, you know, it gets stuck, uh, your auto route thing, <laughs> um, then, you know, you put a lot of energy into something that doesn't work. But we're not used, it's new for all of us, I think, to think in value chains. I mean, steel has been used to think in sector, I suppose. Um, and now we are broadening it out, and this is new for us, and that, I think, is really the difference between the United States. Because IRA, it's five business cases. Boom, boom, boom. And yes, you get CAPEX and OPEX for producing green hydrogen, and yes, you get this butter premium. But then, who takes it? And if somebody wants to buy it, 
how actually do you get it to the one who wants to buy it? US has no pipeline system like we have. I mean, you showed this little, not in the same, you know, not so performing uh, and not reaching the factory gate. It's all about reaching the factory gate, really. So, May I? Yes. So I, uh, I have a problem, right? So I'm feeling here, I'm sitting in the Rome Opera. Uh, so I'm sitting here, I'm hearing fantastic music in my ears. Perfect. We love each other. We help each other. All is there. We are good. We are all together. We have never been together. Fantastic. Now I go out of this door and I come into the reality. <laughs> what is the reality? The steel industry is shrinking in Europe. The last 10 years, the last 10 years, minus 20%. We were, in, before 2016, a net importer of 15 million tons of steel. We are now an exporter, we are now an importer of 50 million tons of steel. We lost 30 million tons, we lost 20% in 10 years. And the shrinking goes on. I have seen this morning the import volumes, the import volumes go up. Europe is the only place in the world where the steel industry is shrinking. The only place in the world. And we still have left 140 million tons of the 1.8 billion tons in the world. Peanuts. So we can keep the peanuts or we can lose the peanuts. But to think that the steel for the windmills are not possible to produce outside of Europe is naive. Is extremely naive. Europe does not produce anything what you cannot produce somewhere else. You cannot produce it everywhere, but you can produce it somewhere else. So when we have the reality, not this opera here, but there, outside, where the violins are not so well working, you see that we have 20% lost in 10 years. And we keep on shouting now for years that the ETS system will further strangulate us, that the legislation is excellent, the renewables excellent, France, nuclear, all excellent in 10 years. When the medication comes, when the patient is dead, it will not be very useful. We have the problem now. We have to transfer, transition now. In our summit on Europe, this year, we pay 500 million euros CO2. In 2030, it will be 5 billion. I mean, pay. I don't hope that the governments calculate that the 5 billion will become in their accounts, because we will not pay it, we will not be able to pay it. Or we will be transitioned in green, or we will be gone. One of the two. But this fund will not come. So, we bought a plant of first in Texas to transport to Europe. This is a DRI which should have been in Europe, which is now there. And I can tell you, we will build another one there. Why? Because today we have no, absolute no view on how we can make a plant sustainable with what is now on the table. And we're working with the Commission and with the Member States, and we're doing this. And for sure we're going to build plants in Europe. No, no issue. Of course we're going to build plants. But to build the DRI plant takes you four or five years. This is two million tons. We have in Europe 
80 million ton blast furnace capacity. 80 million ton. So it is out of the question that you will transition 80 million ton before 2030, 2030. Out of the question. So when we do not find solutions to say, okay, we will transition part and we will build plants in Europe. We have files with Europe. We are doing this. No problem. Absolutely no problem. And we want to stay in Europe. A lot of companies want to stay. We want to stay in Europe. We have the best skills. We have the best people. We love each other here. It's all fine. <laughs> we want to stay here. No problem. Good. Perfect. The question is, we have been shrinking 20% the last 10 years. The question is not, will we build plants? Of course we will. The question is, how much of the steel industry will we have after the next 10 years? This is what we have to... And I can tell you that today, the legislation and the support and the speed of today is by far not sufficient to have a big chunk of this steel remaining in Europe. It is not there today. Then I want to ask you a question. Problem described. If you were in our shoes, yeah. what were the, would be the five things you would do to no. get it right? Look, we need, there is only a problem of timing. There is only a problem of time. There is no problem of final conclusion. There is no problem of hydrogen. There is a problem of timing. And what we keep on saying is that the time we need to transition is longer than the cost which are coming in the CO2 but, but system. Yeah. So you need to adapt, you need to adapt the cost increase. And, and this is clear, what, what does the Commission want to do? And we understand this, you put a high pressure on, on the coal-based blast furnace and then you will transition faster. All the plans are on the table. We, the today, it's just a timing problem. projects are on the table. Yeah, it's not a timing, it's just a time, it's not an absolute goal, it's the timing problem. That the time to, de to decarbonize and to build the plants, even the OEMs, when you build the DRI, there are two of the world that can do this. When I ask to build four DRIs, they tell me the fourth one will be 2032. So you cannot even, even when you have all the money on the table, you can physically, you cannot even do it. So, so, so your legislation of your decarbonization and your transition time is not fitting to the cost increase the steel industry is getting during the ETS system in the next years. And this is not matching. So, or you have to adapt your ETS system, which is very difficult in Europe, I don't know, it's fine. Or you have to find something that you have a transition period where you can do that. And then we don't even need state aid. We don't even need state aid. We can do it all with the CO2 we are paying. We don't even have any need of state aid. But it, and it is just a timing problem. It's just and the, the plants we are going yeah, to decarbonize and the Sarsgit is a very nice example. Sarsgit will survive. They're decarbonized. But you cannot do 86 million ton in 10 years. And in 2030, yeah, with the CO2 cost of the ETS system, it's over for okay. uh, for a blast furnace. Or Good. you define a very nice good CBAM, which today is also so not this, this is that's why we need an opera because you need to synchronize all. Yeah, this. but yeah, and this uh, uh, this uh, is uh, what uh, you uh, didn't do, Kurt. Oh. So, no, 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 no. Let me, let me. First of all, all the people here in the room, governmental no, 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 affairs. No, no. Sorry, 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 sorry. Go There's on. another story. As we understand now, hydrogen is an issue, right? Is it or is it not? It is an issue. If you want to stay here with this industry decarbonized, I can tell you how early we started to contact you companies here, most of you, and I can tell you who responded. The ones who were mentioned today were responding very, very fast. Others as well that are. With your companies, I had fights. With your company, I had fights. The point is, I don't want to refer to this, but if you talk about timing, mm. yeah, 
some decisions that should have been taken on the steel side came rather late, to be honest. That's absolutely uh, as I say it now. But you're right, you're right. If you call me naive, others naive, you're right. If the CBAM doesn't work. The CBAM is so important to replace the ETS system. And here, you talk to the shadow rapporteur of the Greens <laughs> very intensively. I remember that. Many of you did. This is important. And some of us underestimated it. If ETS is hurting hard, the CBAM can, do, can fix it. But we haven't heard your voice very early there. I can clearly say to you, you didn't take it seriously because you were relying on this ETS. And sorry to say, if we really want to go net zero, we have to combine both elements and both instruments and let them work together. It's still not lost. Huh? The case is not lost. But that's why it's so important to me today. And, and Axel, thanks for bringing us together and also for not being diplomatic. Huh? So it's not that I said I love everybody. I don't love Mrs. Vestager. Huh? Although she's a liberal, I don't love her. Really? Because, yeah, you might have heard that now. So I don't say I love everybody here. No. But if we want to keep this peanuts in Europe, that's what I'm saying. We can do it without love, but we need to do it together. Huh? We need to have good arguments. I had fights with uh, representatives of, of your company. You're full in now. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate your, your open words. But I want to be open as well. So if there is a time lag, ladies and gentlemen... This has also to do with some reluctancies. So we have warned very, very early. Giles knows that. Kerstin knows that very well. I was a pain in their neck. I was a pain in their neck. But now we still have the time to do it. But time is running. Time is running out soon, and that's why we need to do it soon. But I appreciate your clear words. It's good to say that. It's not the wrong opera. It's the right opera. Oh, we need an opera. That's we, the first uh, point. First of all, we need to together. And it needs tune. to be synchronized. Um, I do want to take some questions from the audience. So I'm going to take two questions that have come in for Rude on the same subject, and then I'll go out to the in-person audience. Uh, so the question is... Uh, sorry, I lost it here. Um, so for Rude, this is a question from Rainer Lutkehus. Um, what do you think of Christian Ehler MEP's idea the rapporteur for the Net Zero Industry Act, to define net zero technologies by the taxonomy. And related question from Emiliano Alonso. Wouldn't it be clever to extend the NZIA to any industrial decarbonizing investment far beyond a limited number of high clean champions? These are indeed kind of uh, related questions, and maybe Kirsten can also also comment uh, on it. But I think it might go back to the, the, the core of the last discussions that we had over here, which is that even when we, we announced the Fit for 55 in, in 2020, and we, we thought then we were ambitious, and I think we're even more ambitious now, we said it's going to be hard. It really is going to be hard, but we have to be quick. We have to do it this decade. Uh, in order to kind of make this transition, this decade is the decade where we're going to do it. So all of those investment decisions that you're talk talking about, that 30 billion, those are investment decisions that will make sure uh, and shape the steel industry as it will be in 2040 and in 2050. So it's this decade that we need to do it. So with that in mind, we also looked at the Net Zero Industry Act. And we said, okay, what are the key technologies this decade that we really need to develop at scale in order to make that happen. 
And if we look at that, we needed to look at the, the readiness of those technologies, the scalability of those technologies. So how can we quickly, rapidly scale those, those, uh, those technologies up? And what can we bring into Europe in order to strengthen the supply chain? So if you then take those three criteria and you apply them to the different kind of technologies, this is how you then create this list of what we call strategic technologies. Again, it's not saying that the other ones are not important. They are all important, but they're all clean tech, they're all clean energy technologies. We will need them uh, to get to our end goal. But if we really want to kind of tackle the challenges that we have this decade, that's when we need to kind of focus on these very specific uh, technologies. Um, unless Kirsten had anything to add, I'll go to the well, next Well, I just question. would say it's a trade-off between focus and speed. And uh, we try to focus, remember what I said in the beginning, the 24 million companies that have to adapt their business case. In these business case, key element is energy for most of them. So focusing on getting that cheaper energy, I mean, on the clean tech, on that technology that brings down the price of the energy fast and in a foreseeable future promotes the business case. And uh, so that was the, the kind of the consideration to, to find the right trade-off here. So we had a question over here, I think, yes? And there's a microphone coming behind you right now. Uh, thank you, Jana John from uh, permanent delegation of Turkey to the EU, based in Brussels, energy councillor. Uh, the cocktail that dear Gerd uh, described quite hard to digest in the very beginning in terms of energy transition. And, and dear Yorgo, talk about uh, Saudi Arabia's huge investment in hydrogen. And there are more initiatives in the Gulf countries in terms of uh, hydrogen. Uh, the market is there and received the green light, I guess. But the challenge is too big and requires closer cooperation and cooperation. And, and Turkey is, uh, has a growing and huge renewable energy capacity. Uh, dear Giles was in Copenhagen uh, with uh, the Turkish Wind Energy Association. And uh, Turkish Wind Energy Association and, and wind capacity is also growing. And there is a hydrogen valley being established in Marmara region, very close to uh, tr trace region. Uh, and the hydrogen capacity is, is going to be in, uh, huge there. Uh, the, the project is a European uh, Horizon program uh, financed project. Therefore, uh, I would like to uh, ask this question. Uh, how do you see Turkey's potential contribution to the green economy in Europe? Because we have another very important task that we forget decarbonization of the Balkans. And if the Balkans are not decarbonized, we cannot talk about SIVAM, we cannot talk about uh, the, the net zero targets. So how do you see Turkey's potential contribution in this very important uh, task? Thank you. So Giles wanted to take that first. Yes, thank you very much, uh, Jenna. Um, Turkey has built up a very strong and successful wind turbine manufacturing industry. There are 16 factories in and around Izmir now, making blades, nacelles, towers, everything. Most of them are owned by European wind turbine manufacturers. And most of those factories are exporting most of their equipment and most of it comes to Europe. You talk about the Balkans. The Balkans is the 
very corner of Europe that the Chinese wind turbine manufacturers are now targeting. And in the last year, they have won orders in Romania, Croatia, Bosnia, Serbia. They're offering lower prices than we can offer. They're offering terms of finance we would never be allowed to match, let alone be able to match. They say to the wind farm developers, look, don't worry, guys, about paying us for these wind turbines. You just wait until you've built them and you're earning some revenue. Yeah, wait a few years. That's fine. And we have to counter that. And they are precisely going for the Balkans. And we hope that your wonderful niche industry in Turkey, led by European turbine manufacturers, will help to counter that. Could I say something quite techy but important about power purchase agreements? Because, Rude, you made some very important points here. And it's three very small points. It's great what's in the market design proposal, and Rude, and you've described it perfectly. You touched on this guarantee mechanism for PPAs, which I know is crucial to all of you in the steel industry, because you have this uncertainty as to what your revenues are going to be at any one point in time. Well, this is what Rude's guarantee mechanism will help you with. It provides counterparty liability insurance for both sides of a power purchase agreement, both the buyer and the seller. And it's very important that this should be preserved and then built on in the market design proposals now currently under, under negotiation. Secondly, I know many of you in the steel industry are interested in having a standardized PPA contract. Yes, it makes good sense. And five years ago already in the wind and solar industries, we produced a model template contract for PPAs, which is used by lots of buyers and sellers now. But it's a model. It's voluntary. And this is the key thing. If you try and force a certain contract template or standard, then you will run up against very well-established practices for the procurement of electricity. So yes to a standardized PPA contract, but it should be voluntary. And finally, there's this idea that's come from the rapporteur, Mr. González Casares in the Parliament, that there should be a single trading platform uh, completely transparent for the negotiation of all PPAs. Absolutely no way. Nobody wants to negotiate a PPA with the eyes of one single trading platform looking at you. You just won't get PPAs. So if there's anything you can do to help kill that proposal, please do so. Can, uh, yes, yeah, can I quickly respond with two very, very quick uh, things? So, so one is uh, the European Hydrogen Bank. The European Hydrogen Bank, we've worked on the domestic lag, uh, which will be an auction for, indeed, off-takers like yourself to go together with a producer and ask for the green premium. So really kind of cover the difference, making it viable for you. But there's also, going, there's also work on an international lag. And actually today, and that's I think Jorgo was referring to at the beginning, our commissioner will be discussing with the minister of Germany, which has set up already the H2 Global Foundation, how they can closer work together to actually develop a European auction for imports. So that's something which will be very important, in particular also for Turkey, because that will be, of course, uh, with its uh, uh, being proximity, be very interesting. Secondly, there's a lot of work going on right now at the moment at the Union for Mediterranean, where we're looking at trade and specifically clean tech trade. 
Uh, and here there are some plans to really kind of start developing that further because we do think that those value chains, those clean tech value chains that we're creating within Europe should also be expanded to the Mediterranean because that I think would benefit kind of both regions. So um, possibly some news on hydrogen bank coming out later today then. Uh, we had a question here and the microphone's coming up right now. Thanks, Robert Jekyll, Lars Mittal. Um, just on the Hydrogen Bank, we really support that that will come and it will be success. But the first one, as you know, will probably not be so designed that the steel industry can benefit from that. So we really need to have it a success to get it off. But then for the next phases, these people from our companies will also be benefiting from that. That is not the case now. So let's work on that, how to do that. That's one. Second, uh, the real question is what your commissioner is hopefully also discussing today uh, at the plant visit, electricity prices. Um, it has been in the news everywhere. Uh, Ms. Jorna, thanks for raising it because we need the access to not only competitive energy, but affordable energy. Uh, and that is a bit of a problem here. Um, so we have to work. It's a bit of the same timing problem as Geert already mentioned. Maybe in 10 years, after in 10 years, there will be the marginal pricing system. Carbon will do it. Uh, we cannot buy in Europe cost-reflective power like our competitors do. We're shifting from carbon to electro-intensive. We cannot buy in Europe, as you know, cost-reflective power like our competitors. They don't have a market. Our Nobody pays its market prices based on the market with carbon marginal pricing and high gas prices in Europe. So why can we not get cost-reflective power. Uh, we hope you have. You will still do an impact assessment for the market for energy-intensive energy. is not there. We still hope and how to get the solutions to it. One of the solutions now only on the table is to get an industrial price arrangement. I'm not saying it's always stay date. Industrial price arrangement, like is discussed now in Germany, but in each country. If you don't do it, then your price, of course, what you have to pay, is too high to compete on electric uh, power compared to your, you know that. Um, so we hope that also, let's work on that, how the commission can, I would say, allow or incentivize such industrial arrangements with, in this case, steel industry. Um, what is possible at national level? You have, to, of course, the differences are per regional or country level always different. In France, is different than in Germany, etc., or Belgium, or nuclear power, etc. So I think this is really crucial to access for us also power that we can actually compete on and we can also afford the transition. So I think that is really something we really need to, to, uh, to get also uh, worked out. And uh, Ms. Werner, thanks for raising it. Did you want to reply? Um, <laughs> yes, because I think here I, I, I understand the anxiety because we need really that, that renewable, cheap renewable power coming in. Uh, you will definitely need it when you are going to switch, indeed, or build your own electrolyzers uh, on-site, etc. At the same time, there's a lot, hopefully, going to happen in the development of those projects. Uh, really, I think that in the next couple of years, with the, 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 the policies that we put in place to kind of unlock and unblock this whole project pipeline, which was stocked with permitting, we really get volumes in that are big. Uh, and if you, for example, looked at the energy crisis last year, you know, when the prices of electricity went up like 150 euros per megawatt hour, BPAs were still trading at 50 to 60. Of course, 
at the end of the year, they went up as well, but they came down very rapidly again as well. So we really do see, especially for the industry, that this is kind of the avenue to unlock all of that cheap renewable power coming into uh, and what you need for that. Is it there now today? No. I absolutely agree with it. We need more. Six gigawatt what came in last year is not enough. We need 80 to 90 gigawatts per year coming in, a very substantial part of that. And when I say substantial, very substantial part of that should be there in PPAs for the industry to be able to sign at cost reflective prices. So now all PPAs are market related to gas. Yes and no. Yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah, so the question is are all PPAs you know, reflective of, of the electricity or not? There, the relationship is not that clear. Why is the relationship not that clear? It's because the variability of the electricity market prices. Yes, you will have indeed electricity market prices that on average are increasing. Why are they increasing? Because of the, 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 the CO2 tax. But if you look at those going into the market, they are not getting the price, the average price. They get the prices at those prices when renewables are into the system. So there is definitely not a one-to-one -one relationship there. And we really are looking also with the industry to get all of those renewable power projects in. And actually, for them, it's also a good business case because if they can unlock in a price review, they get cheaper financing for the projects, therefore reducing the costs of their, their projects again as well. So I really do think that that is the route that we need to go. On that note, solutions, we're all solutions oriented on this panel. I want to thank the panelists for some really interesting interventions. And I think, like was pointed out, it is really nice to see all these different sectors here together. This was maybe not uh, uh, imaginable just a couple of years ago. And on, and on that note, we have to be singing in the same opera and at least singing the same score. Uh, so how about a round of applause for our panelists? And now I would like to welcome to the podium Axel Eggerts, who is Eurofur's Director General, for some closing remarks. Thank you very much. This was fabulous. I just got a phone call from the U.S. Letterman invites all of you to his late night show this evening. This was really thrilling. This was fun, controversial. Thanks so much for that. It's Impossible to wrap this up in two or three minutes. Impossible. I have a lot of notes here, uh, but I will try to, to do my best. So we started off with the president of Eurofair, Francesco Viralta, who explains the high ambition of the European steel industry to decarbonize. He explained the importance of steel for the Green Deal objectives. And now we see that there is maybe being created a new industrial ecosystem. Wind, hydrogen has already left, and steel. Ruth Kemperer said that would have been impossible a few years ago, such a podium. I think he's right. Gert van Poel said, apparently all love each other here, but when I go out of that door, I will come to the reality. And Yorgo does not like or is not in love with Vestager, that we also learned today. 
Kerstin Johanna said that the commission starts to build a new business case for the European industry. The Net Zero Industry Act is one part of that. EU regulation, which was implemented by the member states in the past, will now be implemented by the European Commission in the member states, for example, for permitting. And Giles said, yes, we did that. It's a good start. There are 15,000 permits in Germany waiting for the transport of wind turbines via the Autobahn. Now, Gerd said, but speed is of the essence. We need to have the right measures right now. We cannot wait 10 years because otherwise steel may disappear or shrink significantly in Europe. We need diversification, he said. Yes, we need hydrogen. Yes, but it can also be in the transition pink, blue, turquoise. We need uh, openness, for, openness for technologies, carbon capture use and storage and other technologies. We need a hydrogen price for the industry at two euros per kilogram. We do not see this happening today, but we need it almost today. In 2025, the steel industry has the first industrial scale projects which could use hydrogen. An alternative is natural gas, but where's the gas? So, Gerd um, said also that we need three points for the steel industry. That is affordable energy and funding and lead markets for green steel. And we need to protect our borders against more carbon-intensive steel, at least in the transition. Jorgo Schatzimakakis said then, yes, we should prioritize on steel when we're talking about hydrogen because there go the big volumes to create a hydrogen economy in Europe. And NEON in Saudi Arabia will produce 600 tons of hydrogen per day. I think it's around about 1.8 million tons a year, could that be? Or 2 million tons? So that is what the steel industry needs between 2025 and 2030. But then he said, oh, I don't know how to bring it to Europe. So we are stuck. And there my notes stop. There would be a lot more to say. I would like to thank everyone, also Euractive, for organizing uh, this event today. And I think uh, in some time from here, we may want to continue this discussion. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for joining us this afternoon. I'd like to now welcome you outside these doors for the reception. Enjoy. <laughs>